Are you a gardener or a flower, John? It's Jeff. In a relationship, there's a flower and a gardener. Um, okay, I don't know. I mean, I, I just thought. I'm a gardener who wants to be a flower. How fucked am I? This one can't garden to save her life. You're going to have to do all the gardening there, fella. Mom. What? My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames Cast. Um, I'm going to be doing a couple of reviews today, but I will begin with some housekeeping. Um, people complained that the last giveaway was too hard because they had to get hold of a copy of Joseph von Sternberg's Morocco. And um, a few people said it was unavailable or was just extortionately... Uh, high price on Amazon. That competition is still running, however, so the first person to send me a review of Joseph von Sturbel's Morocco will receive a copy of Henri Clouseau's uh, Inferno by via Blu-ray in the post, but I will do another giveaway uh, this week, which will be infinitely more easy, and it will be the first person who goes on iTunes and writes a review of the show and lets me know, basically, and you will win a copy of the Blu-ray of The Colour of Pomegranates. Um, it's recently come out here on the UK in a limited edition version and there is a Criterion version that is being released on the 17th of April. So um, depending on where you live, you can pick which one of those you would like to receive and I will send it in the post to you. So very, very simple. Go on iTunes, write a review of the podcast and the first person to let me know that they've done it will receive a copy of the Blu-ray of The Colour of Pomegranates. Um, I can't get any more easier than that. And yes, I know it's basically trying to bribe people into writing reviews of the show. But so what? I need some more uh, uh, feedback on the show on iTunes. And if you want to just write one anyway, um, I would be eternally grateful. Some people in the past have asked if they can support the show financially. I've always declined these kind offers. Um, Basically, it doesn't cost me much at all to do the show. It's about £6 a month in hosting. So um, it would be wrong of me to claim that was uh, massive overheads involved in the running of this podcast. So um, by the mere fact that you're listening and enjoying it, that's payment enough. But if you would be so kind as to write a review anywhere or uh, publicise the show in any way that you possibly can, I would be most grateful. But I'm going to get on with um, a couple of films that I've seen over the past month. And I'm going to begin with Greta Gerwig's Ladybird. I hate California. I want to go to the East Coast. I want to go where culture is, like How New York. How in the world did I raise such a Or at least snob. Connecticut or New Hampshire, Sorry, where writers live in the woods. Get into those schools anyway. Mom! You should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College and then to jail, and then back to City College, and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. <laughs> Ladybird, is that your given name? Yeah. Why is it in quotes? I gave it to myself. It's given to me by me. Ladybird always says that she lives on the wrong side of the tracks, but I always thought that that was like a metaphor. But there are actual train tracks. What she did was very baller. It was very anarchist. Put the magazine back! <laughs> she has a big heart, your mom. She's warm, but she's also kind of scary. You can't be scary and warm. I think you can. Your mom is. So, you're not interested in any Catholic colleges? No way. I want schools like Yale, but not Yale because I probably couldn't get in. <laughs> you definitely couldn't get in. Does mom hate me? If you're tired, we can sit down. I'm not tired. You were dragging your feet. You are so infuriated. Stop yelling. I'm not yelling. Oh, it's perfect. Do you love it? You both have such strong personalities. When is a normal time to have 
have sex. You're having sex? I'm ready. Just wanted it to be special. Why? You're gonna have so much unspecial sex in your life. We're afraid that we will never escape our past. Whatever we give you, it's never enough. It's never enough. It is enough. We're afraid of what the future will bring. We're afraid we won't be loved. You can't do anything unless you're the center of attention. We won't be liked. Yeah, well, you know your mom's tits, they're totally fake. She made one bad decision at 19. Two bad decisions. And we won't succeed. I want you to be the very best version of yourself that you can be. What if this is the best version? What I'd really like is to be on Math Olympiad. But math isn't something you're terribly strong in. That we know of yet. Now, last year, one film stood out from all the others as the most overrated, overhyped, and frankly average film I saw all year. Yet every person I spoke to, every article I read, and every bum bar me was seemingly obsessed with it. The film was Get Out, and it is now the Oscar-winning Get Out. What had I missed? Was I being overtly critical? But I didn't think the performances were that great. It wasn't very funny. It certainly wasn't scary, and its politics and its message were all rather obvious to me. It didn't seem, as I thought, in the least bit sophisticated or particularly well handled to me. Yet critics loved it, and yes, there is good to see that a genre film are getting some Oscar love, but by God, they deserve it. But no matter how hard I try, I can't bring myself to be particularly bothered about Get Out. Now, we are only in March, but I think I may have already had this year's Get Out moment, which has come in the form of Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird. Already released in the States in 2017, the film was making numerous best of lists and receiving significant Oscar buzz. Then I saw the trailer and it didn't amuse me and oh god did she really just throw herself out of a moving car. Is this film really going to try and convince me that that type of stuff actually happens? Now this is Greta Gerwig's debut as a writer and director and she's an actress I know from two films, Frances Hart which I loved and Mistress America which I detested. Dubbed the queen of mumblecore, a genre I refuse to acknowledge actually exists, Going has been the indie cool kid working with partner Noah Bumbach and a variety of decidedly no-A-list directors, bar of course Woody Allen. And of course, like any self-respecting actress, she has refused to work with Woody Allen ever again, despite the fact being well aware of those allegations before she decided to work with him in the first place. And it wasn't, of course, anything to do with career enhancement, but it's probably best for the sake of her career going forward to distance herself as far from him as can possibly be. At the age of 34, she's young, talented and likeable. However, I have to be honest, she may be the queen of mumblecore, but for me she is also the poster girl for banality. She is the Ed Sheeran of conformity, painfully inoffensive, middle-of-the-road creator of art elevated to baffling levels of importance and reverence by audiences, critics and the industry alike. Going is no Agnes Varda, yet, although I doubt she'll ever be from the evidence I've seen so far, nor is she a Kelly Reichardt, yet, what she is, is a functional cipher for Hollywood and the media to impart their values and various causes into. Here is a woman, after all, making a film about the female experience within the Hollywood system, and let's not kid ourselves, Lady Bird is not an independent film, neither is part of some new form of new wave of American cinema. It is, I would argue, perfectly fine, a perfectly safe film, and that fundamentally was my main issue with it. 
The titular Ladybird is a 17-year-old being played by 23-year-old Sarice Ronan in 1970s Sacramento. Actually, it's not in the 1970s, but by God did Gerwin want it to be. However, this is apparently an autobiographical, and it is set in 2003. Ladybird longs to leave what she considers to be the more enlightening East Coast with universities that will better suit her alternative tendencies. Her father is out of work and seemingly struggling with depression, and her mother works double shifts at the nursery simply to keep the food on the table. Meanwhile, Ladybird gets a boyfriend, dumps him, gets another one and loses her virginity. She dumps her best friend Judy for the high school hottie and rich kid, Jenna, and basically does everything that 17-year-old coming-of-age films demand they do. So there is a lot to like about Ladybird. So there is a lot to like about Ladybird. Firstly, and contrary to the sneer you may hear in some of my observations, it is a good thing that women are making films about the female experience. Men and women are different, and Goering has creative ownership of the film as its writer and director. And it's good that this is happening, and I know I don't mean that to be patronising. I want to see and have a variety of experiences when I watch film in the same way that I do when I see films set in different cultures. I want to see films from different gender perspectives. Ultimately, what becomes rewarding for me in this respect is the shared experience, moments in film that no matter what the setting, the location, the gender, I can empathise and find common ground for what I'm seeing. I did this in Ladybird. I did this in Ladybird. Now, Ladybird's actual name in the film is Christine and her desire to leave Sacramento in the pursuit of an idealised other place that because of her age, she has elevated to a near mythical level. Her clashes with her mother are fraught and at times brutal. Mother wants her to appreciate what she has. Ladybird wants to find out for herself. I had the same exact issue myself. I thought that I hated Ken and I could not wait to leave it. What I realised very quickly, that it was my home and there was something undeniably reassuring about this. There is a comforting nature to most of us and more often than not, home is where we have our most cherished memories. What I think Goering does well in the film is that she doesn't overly romanticise the location, nor does she wallow in the financial mire that the family find themselves in. They do not live in poverty, they just struggle. Were this film being made in England, I can virtually guarantee that it would be reduced to poverty porn that is so often confused with a form of social realism. I actually like the fact that Gerwing did not associate class with behaviour. The parents are not alcoholics, they are not abusive to each other, their financial situation is simply pressing. They simply can't send her to a good university, or at least one that she wants to go to. There is probably a wider point being made, the fact that university education is not a universal right, as some say it should be, but I don't think it's being bellowed from the script to the screen. The film simply shows that for Ladybird, there is a reality of which she has to live with, even though it doesn't quite conform with what she wants out of life. And it's clearly a deeply personal film. I can imagine many of the scenes are driven straight from Goering's memory. The film talks about masturbation, the frustrations of Ladybird trying to conform when knowing deep down what she actually wants is to do is blare out the Dave Matthews band songs and hang out with her true friend Julie. Ladybird's relationship with her two boyfriends were less convincing. I never really got the feeling she actually cared about them much more than the script would have us believe. Indeed, I felt Ladybird was made up of too many self-contained scenes, but I felt they included for their sole purpose of making a joke here and a joke there, in lieu of exploring the more interesting acts of the film, namely Ladybird's relationship with her mother, played by the excellent Laurie Metcalf. And as the film progressed, I became consciously aware of just how safe it actually felt, and herein lies my issue with the film. I can't believe that critics have been lauding the film's originality. It has received almost total universal praise across the board, yet I would contest 
that is a largely wholly forgettable experience. It left me frustrated as I want to dig a little deeper into what it actually does well. Ladybird feels like a strangely restrained character piece, as if the real interesting elements of her character and relationships are never truly explored to a satisfactory point. Every time I felt the film was building or doing something well, it seemed to back off and change subject and shy away from really going deeper into its interesting scenarios. In part, I think that it's down to the fact that Lady Bird is trying to have the best of both worlds. It's a comedy of sorts. I didn't laugh, but this is nothing new. I'm quite miserable. And it's kind of a feel-good film, complete with a clever and thoroughly enjoyable twist on the high school prom scene. But it also does want to be taken seriously, and I found that hard to do as well. The film's opening in which Lady Bird and Mother drive along establishes the tone, slick interchanges, followed by a moment of utter insanity. She actually throws herself out of a moving car. Presumably this is the cause of the broken arm we see, but really you want us to take this seriously. It's almost an attempted suicide, if so I don't think it's being dealt with very well. And are we honestly expected to believe that someone who did this would not be a severely troubled person? And this is the endemic problem of these type of films, they mistake quirkiness for quite troubling behavioural patterns. There was a similar tonal problem in Little Miss Sunshine, in which it's quite apparent that the grandfather is a paedophile. Watch that film again and you will see what I mean. Here a teenager throws herself out of a moving car and only breaks her heart. It creates a tonal imbalance, it's not funny and it's not to be taken seriously. So what is it? What is Gerwin getting at with this character? It's a throwaway thing that I think really belies the more important issues with the film. In truth, it just really annoyed me. And it wasn't my only issues, the film politics are obvious and almost irrelevant. They're there to remind you that rich people are bad and the invasion of Iraq was bad. So what, this makes no difference to the story, they are simply there to make the point that the good guys aren't conservative. Goering as a director is fine, and I mean just fine. She uses obvious cutaways to show interior thoughts, and she has a good sense of timing for gags, but I would also suggest that she may have picked up a thing or two from Woody Allen. But that's kind of the problem for me. Why are we so invested in her? What genius am I not seeing? The fact that she was nominated for an Oscar for Best Director is frankly incredible. It's not that the film's incompetently shot. It isn't. It's just fine and functional. Performances are great across the board, the possible being Laurie Metcalf, as I've already mentioned before. And I kind of believed and I liked them all. But again, that's my issue with Ladybird. It's just safe, nice and fine. And sorry, I want a little bit more if I'm to expect I'm witnessing a, some kind of genius at work. Gerwing might go on to become one of the most iconic directors of all time. I don't know, time will tell, but on the evidence of Ladybird, I think there's a long way to go. The haters always say, Tanya, tell the truth. There's no such thing as truth. Everyone has their own truth. I was the best figure skater in the world at one point in time. You call that a clean skate? Stop talking to her. That girl is your enemy. Who's that? Jeff was my first date ever. And my mom came. You need to see a wholesome American family. I don't have a wholesome American family. Nothing's ever your fault. I was embarrassed for you. My entire life, I've been told I wouldn't amount to anything. And you know what? Maybe I would. Never could believe the things you do to me.
4.8. How do I get a fair shot here? We also judge on presentation. I'm gonna need to leave in the playing field. I know a guy shouldn't even be saying his name. Derek. The press wanted me to be the pile of crap. I never did this. going on? We're with the FBI. They know something. What can you tell us about Tanya Harding? I don't know a Tony Harding. <laughs> Aren't you her bodyguard? When I was a kid, did you ever love me? I made you a champion, knowing you'd hate me for it. That's the sacrifice a mother makes. He cursed me. America. They want someone to love. They want someone to hate. I mean, come on! What kind of friggin' person bashes in their friend's knee? Who would do that to a friend? Stop that. When I was 10, I was, by the reckoning of others, a pretty decent tennis player. There was talk of me playing for the county, and I was already knocking up with the adults. I had a mean serve and a killer forehand, and each week I would play league matches with two training sessions that my parents would have to drive 30 miles for. In truth, looking back, my heart was never really in it. I simply didn't have the desire, and ability without desire is not typically the best combination for success. But there was another issue. Now there was another issue. Tennis is not typically a sport one associates with the working classes. Coaching costs and a fair amount of travel are involved. And although we were certainly not working class, we were not the typical tennis types. The typical tennis types were, for the most part, very rich. Children coached to mechanical perfection, topspin on topspin with more topspin, whilst their collection of chinless wonder parents offered fake appraisal on the merits of the other little darlings, whilst taking smug satisfaction that the young Jasper's backhand was far more deadly than the young Rupert's. My parents hated them and them us, and mercifully both my parents and myself reached a silent agreement that I would just play for fun at the local club. It was an early insight into how class worked, but it also made me realise that it was incredibly hard to break through the system and really achieve something, unless you had a lot of money. I didn't know what it was about those rich parents that I didn't like, but there was something so insular about them, and condescending and patronising, almost as if they knew best, and we see it a lot echoed in the world, especially in the world of politics, and one can think of a certain American president at the moment, who, although far from being poor, has come through and really blown away the established norms. And I, Tonya is a film that I think is very much part of the present culture. It is quintessentially an American film, from its aesthetics to its ideology. It revels in a warped exploration of what we so love and equally revile about American culture. Its visual style resembles the autobiographical works of Martin Scorsese with the likes of Wolf of Wall Street and Goodfellas. This is a tale rooted in a quest for fame and glory at whatever the cost. Now, as a rule, I can't stand films that have characters break the fourth wall. Apart from Annie Hall, I can't think of any time it hasn't annoyed me. However, 
With I, Tonya, part of the pleasure is its playful approach to the accuracy of its characters and on-screen confessions. Shot in a quasi-documentary interview style, the film established its characters as untrustworthy, yet compelling orators negating you through a film which never really allows you to be sure what you are seeing is actually fact or fiction. Central to the film is Taunton's relationship with her mother, Lavonia, played by Alison Janey. Hands down, this woman is the best screen villain I have seen in years. Lavonia's approach to parenthood could best be described as barbaric love. She bellow, kicks, stabs and humiliates her daughter at every available opportunity, seemingly just to be mean at times. Tonya, the frankly incredible Margot Robbie, is up to a near constant barrage of abuse from an early age and throughout her life, from her mother to her husband's Although the narration informs us some of the details may be incorrect, it hardly seems to matter. Tonya is the product of a deeply traumatic childhood. What was at first hilarious, the darkness of the film slowly seeps in as you watch it. Lavonia's motivations for wanting her daughter to see seem to be blurred. You rather suspect that she wants to see Tonya make it to the big time only so she can fail big time. The constant put-downs about her weight and her skill become all the more barbed, even going far as to pay someone to heckle her daughter at an event. Lavonia isn't some failed skater herself, she's just a nasty piece of work who seems to want her daughter to be humiliated in front of the most amount of people possible. Yet Tonya herself is no pushover. She wants to make it as a skater to essentially say fuck you to the establishment that tell her her costumes are not classy enough of choice and the music is too out there. Here is a sport that is riddled with class bias. It's an elitist elite arena and why we want Tonya to succeed is because we want to see the system destroyed. Either knowingly or unknowingly, the film for me displayed a particular pertinent subtext to today's political climate. We had the seismic shocks of Brexit and Donald Trump. It didn't take long for the losing sides in each instance to write off the perceived legitimacy of the results by somehow calling that everyone who voted for Trump or Brexit was either a racist or too thick to actually understand what they were voting for. Yet I thought it was all painfully obvious. People were just pissed off with being told what they were allowed to think, wanted to stick their fingers up to the establishment. Which makes Tonya Harding's story all the more compelling today. The judges sneer at her costume, despite the fact that she gives incredible performances. It just isn't what they like. You want her to do well, because you want to see the snobs get what's coming to them. It is the classic underdog story, yet I, Tonya, is more Lance Armstrong than Rocky. For her, winning at all costs mentality means that people will get hurt in the process. But you cannot help but emphasise with her. She is beaten by her mother and her husband, and with the latter involving scenes that are sometimes so shocking you find yourself recoiling from the screen. In one moment, husband Jeff smacks her in the head with, into a wall with such force I actually gasped. Yet Tonya is a person forged by violence physically and mentally. Her overcoming the odds, so to speak, is simply never quitting. You have to admire the film, and Robbie is key to this. There is a look and expression in her eyes that actually burns off the screen during some of the dance scenes. She does not play the victim, she does not want our sympathy. She wants to win, so get the fuck out of her way. And Robbie's performance is a masterclass in acting. How on earth she did not walk away with an Oscar is quite incredible. And it does help you admire Harding through her, yet the film is somewhat problematic. She does, after all, conspire to commit a quite vile act against one of her rivals. Although the film doesn't expressly say it, I think it's fairly obvious, in, were you to look into the case, that she was well aware of what was going to happen to her rival Nancy Carrigan. And let's not forget that Carrigan really is, who doesn't get a great deal of screen time, is really one of the major victims here. 
I felt a tad guilty enjoying the Harding character, and it was quite obvious that director Craig Gillespie uses the tactics of the likes of Martin Scorsese to embed you with her. He uses cutaways to contradict Harding's account of her training regime, or what she may have may have done in preparation for an event. Harding was also battling the very real working world issue of being a human, which means playing pool, drinking and being distracted by the pursuits. Her, her relationship with husband Jeff is also quite an interesting play on the childhood sweetheart story we associate so much with America Carner. We see earnest scenes between Jeff and Harding as he fixes his car and the pair flirt. is presented with such a kind of classical type of way. The young mechanic and the girl next door. The flirting is innocent to a degree, but it soon becomes more blue velvet than grease as very quickly Jeff becomes, as Jeff begins hitting and beating Tonya. These moments of domestic violence are utterly horrific, and yet I dare say they're played with an element of humour to them. Characters stop mid-scene to claim that what you're seeing may or may not have actually happened. Now, I don't think for the second the film is making light of domestic violence, but by God, sometimes I was genuinely shocked, nor do I believe for one second that it's being satirical of Harding's situation. Instead, I found these moments may make me like her more. The violence she's subject to is truly terrible, yet she refused to be beaten by it, and all she wants to do is win on the rink and she will not be the victim. Gillespie directions move on the film at a blistering pace. Although I feel its visual style is most definitely borrowed from the aforementioned Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street and the likes, I don't necessarily think this is a sort of a bad thing as it actually works so well. Itonia navigates you through a celebrity story that is outright ridiculous with a cast of larger-than-life characters who are dumb, devious and outright evil, and of course in the case of Tonya, deeply sympathetic and repugnant alike. It needs to be showy and flashy to sustain the interest and not become bogged down in the darker moments. And of course, there is a nagging doubt that what you are actually seeing is in fact tr not true in the first place. However, I, Tonya, was a blast. It had everything I could possibly want. A great soundtrack, exceptional performances, and it will make you laugh and recall in horror in equal measure. And this is undoubtedly a fine piece of American cinema. This could only happen in America. And I actually felt that the story could have been written by the Coen brothers. America is a culture obsessed with winning. And I still love Lance Armstrong. I'm sorry, I just can't not. I, I almost admire Donald Trump and he is a piece of shit. But he's simultaneously able to convince people that he is a piece of shit and that he should be president. And he won. I like Tonya Harding. And at the age of 47, she has lived a life that's taken her from the Olympics to being a boxer to building decks. Only in America could such an outlandish tale unfold. And in Itonia, we have a very American and very good piece of cinema. That's going to be it for this episode. Um, I am currently working on a f an episode about the third man, which um, at present were I to record it, it would be about five hours. So... Um, I need to do some judicial editing on that. So I'll be cracking on with that. In the interim, um, I will be doing more episodes like this. I'm going to do a Netflix special next and look at the film Mute and Annihilation. I thought it'd be a nice kind of double bill of science fiction. And they've both films of those films seem to have really divided audiences. So I'm, I'm quite looking forward to seeing them. But in the interim, um, many thanks for listening. And I'll be back um, with you soon. Bye.